0: Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed, and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode.
1: Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle we share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this episode, I speak with Dan Stevenson, co-founder and COO of Daily Crunch Snacks, a product brand focused on superfood-infused sprouted nuts. Dan talks about how he fell in love with the health profile, taste, and crunchiness of their product the instant he experienced it. He shares how that love for product and care for the clean and natural ingredients has shaped their approach to operations at Daily Crunch. Dan talks about the challenges and opportunities of sourcing your own raw materials how to engage with and work with co-packers, and how to think about your margins for wholesale, retail, and D2C. With years of experience in CPG, Dan had great actionable advice for anyone trying to launch and grow a CPG brand. Enjoy. All right, hey Dan,
0: how you doing? Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm looking forward to diving into your journey a little bit. Great to be on here with you, Ken. I appreciate you having us on. Yeah, where are you calling in from? I'm actually here in Nashville, Tennessee, home of country music and now Daily Crunch Snacks. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and we, we definitely want to dive into the story
1: of Daily Crunch Snacks and hear where you came from and your journey. But we do like to kick it off with a quote. You told me before that you had two quotes. Do you want to uh, go ahead
0: and share those quotes? Yeah, I, I think they reflect the uh, journey in CPG. The first one is, everything comes to those who hustle while they wait. Uh, that's a Thomas Edison quote. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. And what, is, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, it's just a, a lot of of CPG is a hurry up and wait mentality. And it feels like you're not moving until everything's moving. So if you're always hustling, uh, you, you never actually stop moving. Yeah, very nice. All right. And your second one? Courage isn't the absence of fear, but what you do in spite of it. And that's an FDR quote. Yeah.
1: And that, that's actually one of my favorite ones. I I share that with my kids all the time and then they play sports and just being a kid, you get nervous about things or get scared about things, but knowing that even your heroes that you look up to that seem to have everything put together and kind of know it all and have all the skills, even they get scared, but they, they continue forward in spite of it. Is that kind of how you view it? You know, what, what significance does that have for you?
0: Yeah, I've kind of seen the the depths of both sides of entrepreneurship, the highs and the lows. And when you pull off that band-aid of fear, and you actually just keep moving forward, you realize it's not as scary as it can be, and that inaction can sometimes cause.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I really do. You know, that's one of my favorite quotes. And it's sort of that like, expect to feel fear at times Mm -hmm. you know and it doesn't have to freeze you kind of like you said with the inaction Um, you can still operate even though you know you you might be scared about certain things you know Um, well that's that's great so let's kick it off why don't we start with just where you're from and a little bit about your background
0: yeah I'd love to I actually grew up in uh, Shaker Heights Ohio east side of Cleveland and still have a lot of love for the city of Cleveland so get back there from time to time, but ended up at in Nashville, Tennessee via Vanderbilt. So I did my undergrad at Vanderbilt and that's what brought me to this great city in 2003. And it's kind of crazy to say that. Yeah, and, and what did you study in school? I studied economics and corporate finance. Really fell in love with economics and in particular macroeconomics, seeing everything, the big picture behind it. I've always had a passion for strategy and the why. And that kind of gave me that lens to 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 look at the world with.
1: Yeah, it's always interesting to to just find out a little bit about people's backgrounds. I mean, did you ever think that you were, you would launch your own product or, you know, be in the CPG space? Did you have that in your head at all at any of
0: that time? You know, it's it's funny. I've always knew that I was going to have my own business. I just didn't know what it was going to be. I had a candy business in high school where I would. Buy wholesale and sell to the kids there, and give some of the security guards and teachers to to be my protection, but it was one of those things that I love the movement of products and, and just how distribution works and so giving me a lens to look at it the world from a bigger perspective felt like a great way to approach business before I even launched my own and so you
1: worked in in um in finance for a little while. And then it, it looks like
0: you launched a mac and cheese business. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, I always had a passion since I was young for food. And so I've always been creating things. And the first thing that I ever made when I was young was mac and cheese. And my mom, I was kind of a precocious kid and told her that I needed an afternoon meal because I didn't like eating breakfast. And after a while, she... She said, eh, enough is enough. You need to learn how to make it. And I was four years old and learned how to make mac and cheese. Well, <laughs> that came full circle. And, and I made it as a meal for my girlfriend at the time and now wife. And, and, and it was a hit. I knew I had a great creation and I had habanero and sausage and four different types of cheeses and fresh onions and peppers. And that was the Mac attack. And that's what launched the whole thing. I didn't know what I was going to do with that, except that I just had a passion for food and just wanted to keep sharing. it. And so one of the ways that I express who I am to people that are close to me and people that I don't know is through food and flavor. So I love hosting dinner parties and had a buddy over that had a salsa business and said, you just need to start selling this. And I didn't know what that meant. He introduced me to the uh, director of a farmer's market in Nashville and ran with it from there, and started uh, creating my line of gourmet mac and cheeses. Oh, very nice. And it looks like you did that for about nine years or so. Is that right? Yeah, so I did that in parallel to working in corporate finance for about two and a half years. I I didn't start it with the intention of leaving, but I, I saw a niche within the natural and better for you product segment for where I could fit in. And so I created this frozen product line that we ended up scaling and taking to about 3,000 doors around the country. Before I even really knew what the industry was, I saw a fit for it. And and I loved how consumers can can relate with a brand. We we were Jif Jeff, Jeff peanut butter people when, when I was growing up. And my mom always bought Crunchy Jif. And, and there were several other brands like that that resonated. But I saw that repeat purchase and that emotional connection you could create with the consumer. And and I always wanted to create that with a product of my own.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I, I think that we could probably talk in detail about your mac and cheese business and that distribution. I think today, though, we want to focus on Daily Crunch. That's take us from the mac and cheese business to meeting your co-founders and, and deciding to to launch Daily Crunch.
0: Yeah. So after I left... Dan's Gourmet, it evolved into having a food truck that sold the mac and cheese. And so that was its own business. And I had a consulting Mm -hmm. practice and I was part of Entrepreneurs Organization here in Nashville. And someone in EO, also in EO, connected me with Laurel, who's now one of my two co-founders in Daily Crunch. She and her aunt were working on a project with... These crunchy nuts called sprouted nuts. And I'd never heard of sprouted nuts, but I knew how to get products to market and build a brand. So we started, we sat down to talk and just hit it off. Okay. And she was in, in Nashville there? Yeah. So she's in Nashville and she brought samples of this product when we met. And coming from a food background, for me, taste and texture is everything. And so it doesn't matter how much people will or want something to exist in the world. If it's not good, you're not going to get the repeat purchase. But the first thing that that I tasted with these was this unique crunch that I never had with any other nut. And so I was immediately intrigued by the product and then really fell in love with my co-founders. And that was a difference that I, I didn't have with the first business was a founding team. Got it.
1: Maybe you could explain a little bit more about these nuts. I'm sure all, you know, the listeners, they've they've had nuts before. What's unique about and what captivated you about what Laurel showed you?
0: Yeah, Diane actually discovered this process in India. Her sister was going there regularly for spiritual reasons, but all the women would soak their nuts in water at night and then eat them the next day. So they brought that process back to Austin, where her sister was living and started dehydrating them and the the dehydrating of them anywhere from uh, 12 to 48 hours gives this unique crunch. And so now what we have done in this scale up is the soaking and and it sheds the phytic acid. So this phytic acid is on the outside of almonds. Almonds actually have the most amount of phytic acid of uh, any food in the world, actually inhibits digestion. So the sprouting process, our soak, sprout and dehydrate process Removes the phytic acid, makes it easier to digest, and then hollows it out on the inside. And then the dehydration pulls the water out, leaving you this crunchy nut that is unlike anything else before. It actually makes an audible pop that you can hear. Let's see if I can hear. And so, Yeah. 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 So, early on in the branding, we knew we had to convey the most important part of this which was the crunch, because even though there's all these amazing health benefits that even Diane didn't know at the time, we just knew she had a better nut, including there's higher bioavailability, your body's able to absorb more nutrients with this process from the nut. Mm -hmm. We knew that the most important thing to convey was that crunch. So that's part of what our job is to do. And so... um
1: Yeah. Take us back just a little bit. So when they approached you or when you approached them, how far along were they in terms of developing the brand and having an actual product
0: to sell? Well, Diane had been selling them to friends in France or gifting them and or selling them to friends for about 18 years. But Laurel actually came from 18 years at Unilever in New York City. And so for her she saw the potential and she'd been snacking on these. So Diane is her aunt through marriage. And so Uh she saw her family, just all these picky eaters and just golfing, grabbing these nuts and chowing down on them. And for her, she uh, approached Diane about, can we make this a real business? So they were in the early stages of just looking at Thinking about packaging and flavors. So I came in before we really done packaging, naming, branding. And so we really got to build it from the start. And we each have complementary skill sets. Would you describe, describe those a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So Diane is extremely creative in the kitchen and has this big personality, loves to share with people, is always hosting and. and she's able to get great feedback and, and test things out and get it in front of people and get people excited. Mm-hmm. Oral, super smart marketing expertise, knowledge, overly bubbly, like just could pull anybody in and then really brings this this experience from working on campaigns like Hellman's and Dove uh, Campaign for Real Beauty. And they're both super genuine. And so when you put the three of us in, any trade show convention, I mean, we can share not only the attributes, but just the love that we have for this product. Um, all of us believe in it and live it. And I think that's a, a big thing is do the founders convey the energy and the attributes of what a brand needs to be? Uh, so authenticity has really been a great thing with this founding team.
1: Right, right. Well, and 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 you talked about, you know, your co-founders um, you know, their, their strengths and really what they bring to the table. What about, what about you when, you know, you look at your skill set, you know, what do you, what do you think you bring to the team? And I know it's always hard to talk about
0: yourself. Yeah. I, I'd say one of the things that I learned out of the first venture, uh, I, I gained a sense of humility and I know that's not usually an attribute people use, but I didn't have to make it about myself. And I really was able to be objective because it wasn't my baby this time. Mm -hmm. I was able to say, what is great about what this product is and what is great about the people around me and how do we prop up both of those things? And so I've learned a lot on the operation sides of, of how to bring products to market. I come from a finance background, so I was able to create all our models for pricing and for budgets and for projections fundraising, working with brokers, identifying co packers It's a lot of know-how and things that you have to do when you build a product in the CPG space and then allowing Laurel and Diane to run with some of that innovation and that marketing of which they have a lot of experience. Yeah, got it, got it.
1: Yeah, so let's take it. So you joined the team. What are the first steps that you guys took at that time?
0: Yeah, so... The first thing was actually putting uh, a brand behind this product. And we went through a lot of different names and iterations. I think the first version of the product before Laurel and I came on board was the health nut. And we knew that we wanted to convey some a uh, little bit a different tone with that. But we looked at products that we loved in the marketplace. And two of them that we loved were RX Bar for its ingredients and how they were very clean, transparent. We knew exactly what was in the packaging. The other one was Boom Chicka Pop. We think (laughs) they're pastels that just pop off the shelves. You go down those aisles at Costco, you can see it from anywhere in the store. And at the end of the day, Angie made great popcorn, but it's just popcorn. Um, And so for us, we like to say our packagings like RX Bar and Boom Chicka Pop had a baby. So... (laughs) That was a lot of the inspiration for the early brand, and then went through the naming and the the hierarchy, which I love in terms of how customers read and how it resonates. Those were some of those first steps um, before we started getting into product flavors and varieties.
1: Okay. And how how were you making this at the time, and what was the plan in terms of production?
0: Yeah. So... The soaking process is pretty straightforward from how Diane had been doing it to even in the scale-up. The scale-up on the dehydrator is the big change. So Diane and Laurel are both using what are called Excalibur dehydrators, just little home dehydrators. And so we knew that in the scale-up that we were going to have to work with the co-packer, find out the you know types of dehydrators out there and knew that it would change some temperature and profile as well as the time. So identifying somebody that already had experience plus had the dehydrators themselves was a big part of it because you went from making 20-pound batches to 2,000-pound batches. Right. And so, yeah, I I can imagine that'd be a
1: challenge to find somebody with this expertise. And I'm sure the listener is thinking they wouldn't even know where to start. What tips could you give us about identifying somebody with like in terms of a co-packer with that skill set? How do you even go about it?
0: Yeah, the easy answer is to say, talk to people in the food industry. But before I was even in the food industry, I wouldn't have known who to reach out to and how to go about that. Or that this whole world of people that only make other people's products exists. So one of the ways you can actually back into it is looking at the back of a package and seeing where it's made. A lot of these places don't have the really good web presence. But if you think about the equipment that you might need to make your product, even if it's not the same. So for example, you could talk, if it's a dehydrator you need, what are the other dehydrated products that exist out in the world? Okay, you've got kale chips, and you've got meat snacks, and you've got um, dried fruits. So working backwards from the back of there is sometimes an easy way for people to at least start reaching out, find a, a city in a town and a name of a a company that might be producing a uh, a product that uses the equipment that you'll need when you scale up
1: okay so maybe you find let's say a meat stick right you find a meat stick and you you know say hey these guys have to dehydrate this product so would you contact the the brand then
0: or how do you take it from there maybe fill in some of those dots yeah it's a lot easier when you come from a position of you like somebody's product and you're looking at launching a product of your own in non competing space brands mm-hmm. are and entrepreneurs are pretty open to it. People that have navigated through being an entrepreneur know that they got their breaks from someone like them. And they're usually pretty open with that knowledge. And I've met so many great people over the course of building businesses because success is not a 0 sum game. People know that they can help you and it doesn't hurt them. And so it, it's been... I'd say reaching out to those entrepreneurs and and asking them how they built it, uh, especially if you listen to them and compliment they're usually happy to share and, and at least make a few introductions for you yeah, and I think that makes sense and for those who are feeling you know apprehensive about this,
1: I think it we can point back to that quote where we we started this off with, where yeah, you might be a little intimidated or feel a little bit of fear to reach out to somebody like that. But if you think about it, so the worst thing that can happen is they say that they don't want to tell you or they don't answer. Yeah. Know? So you don't really have anything to lose. And and to your point, I found the same thing in my career is that people are usually genuinely like happy to help. They want to share. They love telling their story. They would love to tell
0: you how they how they did it. Yeah. And you've got such a cool platform to be able to get those insights from people. But you're right. It's the, the secrets to building a business aren't usually closely held by the people that are doing it. There's a lot of luck in it and a lot of hard work. So even if you gave somebody the playbook, they still have to execute and they still have to work hard. All right. So you found a
1: dehydrator. You found somebody. What, were they local? How did you go about engaging with them and getting your first run
0: going? They are actually on the East Coast and so not local at all. And not really close to where almonds uh, (laughs) come from. We source all of our almonds from Northern California, and we test run uh, a few products uh, with them. They'd never done almonds, or actually never had done nuts before. And, And so learning process was very real for what could go wrong. So I remember one of the batches we ran, I swear, we we tried it and um, like it. This isn't right. It it tastes like Chinese food or, or something. <laughs> I mean we, we couldn't identify it, and we found out they'd run flavored onion rings you know, the, the day before and 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 part of that was there. It's just a different level of sanitation because almonds absorb so much flavor. Okay. Uh, and so that, that process of sitting there in air for as long as we dehydrate them, it, it, it becomes it opens those pores of those almonds to take on whatever flavors are in your dehydrator chamber. So <laughs> uh, that, that could be the, a good flavor though. It sounds like you could yeah, you could run yeah. with that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you want these aren't your classic unsalted clean flavor. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> there there's definitely room for um for a, a general sow's.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's funny and so it sounds like there was a process of experimentation to to get your your product just right and and it and to be honest it sounds like you had some experience with this before from your previous uh, businesses you know working with a co-packer and how do you think how do you think you approached it maybe some of the things that you did right that maybe you've seen other people you know, mess up when engaging with a new co-packer?
0: I think that uh, transparency is really important in that co-packing relationship of what ingredients we're using, how we're doing a product. And I I know that some co-packers aren't or don't want to be transparent on where their pain points are for cost or the sourcing of materials. So one of the things that we... Did early on was source all of our own materials. And essentially, the co-packing relationship was more of a tolling fee. So, doing exactly our process in their facility mm-hmm. rather than letting them own process and materials and, and just selling an end product. I've done it both ways, but I think that having just a tolling allows you to go and source better. So, if I find a better almond supplier, not only in price, but taste, I can make that relationship work rather than depending on the supply of almonds that said co-packer has. It also helps from a transparency and and sustainability perspective when you're sourcing ingredients. I want to know each farm that every ingredient's coming from because that's more important to our consumer today than it ever has been in the past. Um, It's really tough to do if you're just allowing somebody else to pick those for you. It also doesn't encourage... In the improvement of margins and, and really encourages someone else to cut corners rather than you to, to figure out where you need to get more efficient on your sourcing.
1: Is that something that you would
0: recommend that new brands do? Try to source it
1: themselves? I mean, you said that you've done it both ways. What would be your advice if somebody was asking how they should proceed?
0: Yeah, I think in in this day and age, you want to be able to speak to these people that you work with, consumers care about it. We have an amazing almond farmer in Northern California who's the largest, who's now the large, largest bee-friendly certified farmer in the world. And by having that relationship with him, we can see the challenges they're having in the supply of crops. We can hear about the successes they've had in drip irrigation despite said flooding going on. We can hear about the difference in quality of almonds between them and other people, and people, and we're able to share their story. So we can actually feature blogs featuring their story. If there's, a, if there's something between me and that farmer, if I'm not the point of contact for that relationship, it's a lot harder to, to really build that trust when you need a favor or as you're growing to know that they're gonna be a partner when it's through somebody else. So yeah, I highly encourage people to try and build co-packing with a tolling fee mentality in mind. So you can drive down to actual costs. If you're only asking them to produce and bag, you can get to a more efficient place from what are those cost drivers and how you can improve margin because margin is so critical in this game, as you know right and i'd actually like
1: to to revisit that you know one one last question about this co-packer relationship what are some of the the let's just say the pros and the cons or or maybe some of the challenges you know so we've talked about some of the advantages of doing it but what are some of the challenges associated with sourcing it yourself
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a heck of a lot of work i mean uh, you'll have 20 plus suppliers uh, bringing products in from all over the country and, and then ordering increasing amounts as you scale in size when if somebody else was buying everything for you it, it really helps the cash flow because if you're not paying until say 15 to 30 days after a products produced that's the first time cash goes out in the business flow but when you're support sourcing your own ingredients you're buying ingredients. Sixty to ninety days before production date, which means that you're one hundred and twenty days before you would have paid it if you had a co-packer sourcing and making it all for you. So huge shifts in in the in the flow of cash. So that's where I think some of the advantages are to people that mm-hmm. allow the co-packer to source it. So it's just another thing to think about.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that you're right. The cash flow
0: is definitely a concern. And like. That economies of scale. If, if you have mm-hmm. a packer that's already buying, say you're making chickpeas, they are already buying a million pounds of chickpeas from a farm that you go to try and negotiate pricing. The incremental amount of your hundred thousand pounds to their million is your hundred thousand pounds on your own might might cost fifty cents a pound, but they're already at forty. So, right, uh, you get the there's economies of scale if you have them if you can leverage their buying power. If they don't have buying power in what you're producing, there's no real need to have them source it for you. Yeah, particularly if they're marking it up, and, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of co-packers
1: like to actually yeah. source for you, is they'll mark up the, the, the price and pass it on to you. Yep. Um, yeah, so let's dig into margins just a little bit. You know, um, let's say that I'm launching a new product, let's go with the chickpeas example. How do I need to think about my margins at every level from my cost to produce it to what I expect to sell it to a um, wholesale seller for and then they'll mark it up? Can you maybe explain that a little bit for people who are a
0: little bit unclear on that? There's some rough numbers that we can put there, but I would want to be at a 50% margin goal. So maybe you can't get there right away, but you're probably going to have margin compression over time, 50% margin between what it costs you to produce and what you sell it to to wholesaler for. So that allows you, gives you some room to promote as well as as distribute it and and actually put some away for growth. That would be a goal to work backwards from. And then as far as a rough number goes, you can basically take the price you sell it to a distributor for and double it. So if you're selling a product for $2, you might get some more advantageous distribution, but... When you go through a distributor, they're going to mark up anywhere from lowest you'll see for a cost plus will be about an 8% markup, but it will go as high as 35%. And then the retailer, once they buy it from the distributor, will mark it up anywhere from 35 to 50%. percent Or in some outlets, for example, like airports, where airports want to mark up 60 to 65%. So I don't make any more on that sale when you see... A product selling for $10 uh, because we're selling for the same price, but the the people in between me and that final customer, whether it's the distributor or the retailer, they have varying markups that will, will generally double it from your wholesale cost to your retail price. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think that those rough numbers are, are really helpful.
1: And how do you think about that in terms of pricing on your own site? So going D2C is a very popular way to go to market. How do you think about pricing? on on your own site?
0: Well, I I think one of the most important things you can do before you launch is is really look at your category. Take a hard look of what else is out there. And you don't want to be more than 20, max 30% higher than what's in your category. Um, There's obviously examples of brands that have been able to do it. But a lot of times the way that they found success was changing... The form factor to be able to be in a more cost, I'd say cost-attractive price for trial. And one of the clear examples I'd say is Justin's. They were a a nut butter before nut butters were gaining in popularity. So the idea of an 8 to $12 nut butter when you're next to Jif at $4 was a really tough proposition. But they ended up putting single packets out there that they could put in that next to it so that people could try it and know that something was worth paying a premium for. So I I like really analyzing a category to see, am I within 30% of the other options in there? Because if I'm more than 30% off, it's going to be tough to even get the trial going. Mm, Understood.
1: Okay. So let's talk just a little bit about the number of SKUs you guys launched with. Um, I see you've got, what is it? Four or five different flavors now that you've got on your site? Is it
0: more than that? We've got different bundles, but right now we've got five flavors in two varieties. Mm -hmm. So the first three were our classic sprouted almonds, which actually won the Good Housekeeping Snack of the Year Award last year. Nice. Congratulations. uh, Thank you. Thank you. Very proud of that one. And then we also launched with our Cherry Berry Nut Medley, So it's blueberries and cherries with sprouted almonds, walnuts, and cashews. So kind of trail mix, but in an elevated sense. And then the third one is our coffee-soaked sprouted almonds. So instead of soaking in purified water, they soak in coffee um, and take on that rich Arabica coffee notes. And so those were the three that we launched with last March at the start of the pandemic. Wow. And
1: uh, if you had to do it all over again, do you think that was a good strategy, launching with the three... How did that work out for
0: you guys? You know, three is um, the minimum number that I would ever launch a line with. I'd say three to five is a great place to be. Five, you probably get some cannibalization for a new brand. I'd say four is a pretty happy number um, where you've got, you show that you're more than just a one trick pony and you also get a little bit more room on a shelf. And, and I say on a shelf, launching in a pandemic, there weren't many shelves you were going for. So it's more e-commerce offerings, but people want to have ability to try different products when they order from you, or else they're probably just going to find you from on Amazon if you've only got one product. Right.
1: Okay. So yeah, so let's dig into that a little bit. You guys launched in the middle of the pandemic, pretty early in the pandemic. How was that? And what were some of the challenges and what are some of the advantages from launching at that time? We launched
0: March 4th National Snack Day and we were supposed to be at Expo West and Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't happen. We got the emails and notified that Expo was canceled. So that was the start of what changed everything for everyone, but really took us back to the drawing board. And I didn't know at the time how much it would affect all trade shows being canceled for the rest of the year. And even in this year, everything going virtual, people not leaving the house, working from home. What we have is, you know, we have a grab-and-go mini size and as well as a five-ounce pantry. You had to think about the changing use cases and, and how you're going to advertise that to people. So all the reviews being canceled was meant that we were really going to have to focus on getting it to people at home. So how, how could we find them and how can we connect with them? So that, that really became the shifting focus for us. So I'd say the first three months were kind of a friends and family launch. We launched on our website, but then in June, July, we launched on Amazon. Three of our, two of our three products that we released were the top SKUs and the almond and the mix categories. So it, it, awesome. that, that was a fun way to, to come out and, uh, and
1: share with the world. Yeah, and so you mentioned to try to connect with people and I assume on social and online,
0: you know, were there anything, was there anything specific that you guys did that you felt uh, worked worked well? We reached out to a lot of people. I knew some people in the industry, and I'd say one of the things that Diane and Laurel are awesome about is they're not afraid to pick up the phone, shoot somebody a message, and, and just share, hey, look at our awesome product, check it out, we'd love to send you some. And so we made some great connections early on, and it's contributed to some of that PR that we've gotten. We've won five awards in the first year of being in business and we've gotten some fantastic PR. And I'd say when you aren't scared and you're excited about what you're doing, people wanna hear that story anyway. And then when the product is good and the the team is driven, people wanna share it. And so I think that's where that PR connects and, and that really started helping us accelerate. Nice. And yeah, coming out of COVID, what are the plans?
1: What are you guys looking forward to?
0: we never stopped pursuing traditional retail during all this. And and so we now are able to do different programs and do sampling and emphasize the on the go grab and go type of our 1.5 ounce minis. So we are in review for a couple big retailers, but we just launched in two key ones. One of them being Meyer in the Midwest. Um, we had a, a buyer that, fell in love with our product, and we have now launched both sizes. So our 1.5 ounce at the check lane and then the five ounce in the uh, superfood category, the superfood snacks. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're basically growth hacking. I, I, that's the best way to describe it. A lot of different places where we're going. So we've got a, a mass one. We've got 400 natural and independent stores around the country through Infra and through the KE Elevate program that we are accepted to. We've got, we just launched in CVS and their health hubs, which are sort of between Sahali and Skinny Dipped. And we're getting to prove it in these different channels. I, I really like testing a lot of different areas, different channels to see different velocities. So one of the ones we've been doing a test in is the airport market. And we went into San Francisco airport into a couple of their stores and it's been flying off the shelves. And San Francisco has been one of the hardest hit airports in the country. But because of the progress we've made there that we're going to expand with this national airport retailer. So those are the nice. types of things that we like to see. All right, where? how fast does it move on its own? What kind of campaigns can we test there? And then how can we invest more into that area if it's working well?
1: Sure. And what would you say your breakdown is right now in terms of D2C versus wholesale? And what's your goal there? What kind of breakdown would you like to see?
0: I think D2C was higher earlier on due to the pandemic, but we've grown a lot through KEHI and through the, this Meyer and CVS. And so I'd say right now it's about 20% D2C. Mm-hmm. I would actually like to see that D2C number end up more like 40%. And so right now we just actually move to an e-commerce fulfillment center to take that off our plates so that we can invest in growing our, our website channel. So while we do fulfill by Amazon, and that is becomes pretty hands-off on the actual fulfillment side, we've been fulfilling our own on the, I'd say, less than half pallet size. And that, I think we can turn over. We've now turned over to another partner that um, allows us to focus on building that brand and growing in all those areas that we want to be in to get up to that 40%. Oh,
1: nice. So one of the things that I really like about your brand is that you guys have this mission, this mental health mission. Can you tell us just a little bit about that and and how it came about?
0: Yeah, we have a mission around mental health awareness. So one of our co-founders, Diane, lost her son about seven or eight years ago to suicide when he was at the University of Michigan. Mm. He was suffering from bipolar disease and was going through more than anyone knew and mm-hmm. needed an outlet for connecting um, with other people to know that, like how deep that hurt was. And so one of the things that her family came out of this was developing the World Marine Network at the University of Michigan for the support network. And so the support network is a peer-to-peer network that helps... Uh, students connect with each other to reduce the stigma of mental health and and find help. And we believe as a company that there's a real connection between what you eat and how you feel. So beyond the Sport Network being a great group and reducing such a critical age for when mental health issues really pop up during those college years, we really feature um, people that are open with their mental health struggles, because we all have them, and it's okay to not be okay. And that's one of those, it's one of those things that the stigma still exists. And what we want to do is keep reducing that stigma. People have been open and honest with their struggles with weight or disease, but mental health has been one of those that it, the stigma has not been removed. And Mental Health and Awareness Month was May, and we did a matching for the support network. Um, and we got donations from people all over the country. Not only donations, but we have buyers that we've met with and people that we've met with and customers that say how much what we're doing really makes a difference because everybody has someone in their life, even if it's not them personally, that is dealing with mental health issues. That's been a real rewarding focus of building this business as well. Yeah, yeah, good for you guys. It's a great cause. One of the
1: things that I at least I'm hopeful that we take from COVID is a little bit lessening of that stigma for mental health. I think people have struggled during this pandemic and oh, yeah. in many different ways. And it's heartening a little bit to see people be able to express that and open up a little bit about it. You know, I, I know we're not there yet.
0: long way to go, but hopefully we've made a little bit of progress there. Yeah, that, that's our hope. And I think that our part as a brand that is getting great you know pr and social following is that we can share the the stories of people that are overcoming it and okay with not being okay mm-hmm. and it's so cool to hear about how not only the support network but the brand is helping shine a light on some of that oh that's great that's inspiring yeah um, let's switch to the,
1: the quick fire round. Um, before we actually started recording, me and you were talking for a little bit and I realized we could talk forever. Let's wrap this up here. We'll go to the quick fire round and then get a, a few parting words from you. So four quick questions. Just tell me the first thing that comes to, to your mind. All right. Um, what's one tool or resource that has helped you the most in your current career?
0: Fiddle. How is that even a question?
1: <laughs> no, but, hey, I, I, and yeah. I and I love that answer, of course, right? So,
0: <laughs> no, we I've been building models and, and and spreadsheets with both costings and inventory flowing in and out, and when I saw that the fiddle was an option to connect all those, I I I was like, all right, sign me up for whatever demo you got, and we've uh, just started implementing it three weeks ago, and couldn't be more impressed so far. No, that's awesome. That's awesome, and We're very open to your feedback, especially with your experience,
1: you know, modeling costs. And, you know, we'd love to, to bake some of those learnings into the product to help other people.
0: I've got one. I've got one. Building an AI predictive nature. Out of it. <laughs> I've talked to Morgan. I, I've dropped that one on him, but I'm going to drop it on the podcast to put the pressure on you guys. Okay, <laughs> we'll get right on it.
1: <laughs> What's one book that you could recommend to people? Shoe Dog.
0: Uh, by Phil Knight. I absolutely love that book. Oh, I've never written a, a letter to anyone after reading a book, but I wrote a letter to Phil Knight of Nike. I mean, it is <laughs> the most incredible story of entrepreneurship and the real struggle behind it. It's so raw and open that I was just, I was compelled. And I had to reach out to Phil.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I listened to it on Audible. Yeah, and it's one of the few books where I finished it and immediately started it all over again because <laughs> I liked it so much.
0: <laughs> so, that 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 speaks to it. I mean, if 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 you're in, even if you're not an entrepreneur, but if you're an entrepreneur, hands down, it's a it's a must read, must listen. I mean, it, it is so powerful.
1: Yeah, and and I think it touches on. I, I think it. I don't know. It touches an entrepreneur in an interesting way because we all know Nike. And we know just what a force that brand is. And then hearing the story of the humble beginnings and the real struggles that they went through in the very early days, Oh. I mean, uh, it's
0: it's amazing. Bankrupt you, you, three times. I mean, do, I mean, Ken, did you think there was a chance that Phil Knight could write a whole book that doesn't talk about Michael Jordan, that doesn't cover <laughs> Michael Jordan? I mean, yeah, no kidding. I just, I didn't think that was possible, but that's the reality of the Nike that he built, which I didn't even know about. Yeah,
1: no, great book. What is uh, one piece of advice that you'd give your 21-year-old
0: self? Follow your passions. Don't focus on the world's perception of you and don't be afraid to fail. So just follow those passions and see where they take you. Mm.
1: And who's one person in the world that maybe somebody that you look up to that you would love to take
0: to lunch? Man, I'd love to go to run, lunch with uh, Richard Branson because I think lunch could turn into uh, skydiving or kite surfing pretty quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah, and not to mention, you'd have, a, you'd have a thing or two to to
0: say about brand, you know. And You'd have a little bit, yeah, 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 exactly. But if you could do it from 14,000 feet, uh, it might be even more impactful. Are you a skydiver? Have you done that? I've done it a couple of times. I wouldn't call myself a skydiver, but... I'm kind of a thrill seeker. So whatever's available to me, uh, I'm going to say yes to. We, my buddy t- took us all to race C8 Corvettes last week in Bowling Green. And that was the most recent thrill. And it was fantastic.
1: I'll race Corvettes. I don't know if I I'll jump out of a plane, though. I'm I'm, I'm not that brave, let's say that. Big, though.
0: You don't know what you can do until, until your wife looks back and and... Tells you to man up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's funny. All right. Hey, Dan, I appreciated the conversation. I think that there's some really good lessons in this. What advice would you give to other entrepreneurs, other people that are in the CPG or physical product space, maybe other
0: food entrepreneurs? What would you say to them? I'd say surround yourself with people smarter and more experienced than yourself. I know that can be intimidating sometimes, but just defer to them and you can be around them. And then when you get in that moment, listen more than you speak. If I can be around people that have great experience, if I shut up and listen, I'll probably get a lot further. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's a great place to to leave this off. I appreciate you taking the time
1: and jumping on with us and wish you the best of luck with Daily Crunch. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, it, Ken. We'll talk soon. All right. Talk soon. Bye. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. Fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for physical product movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening.